0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Political conventions often feel scripted, but there's potential for real drama when Republicans gather in Cleveland next week. A group of delegates from across the country hopes to block Donald Trump's nomination. That group includes longtime GOP activist Kendall Unruh of Castle Rock, whose day job is teaching government at a Christian school. We're going to hear from her first and then from a Colorado delegate who supports Trump. Kendall, thank you for being with us. Sure, thanks for the time. You promised to take this fight to the convention floor. Why anybody but Trump?
1: Well, because he's not a Republican. Because I get asked that a lot, saying, well, if it had been anybody else, would you have been doing this? Of course not. Because all of the rest of the candidates, all 17 of them, except for Trump, exemplified our platform, exemplified what it means to be a Republican. May not have been as conservative as I would have liked them to be, but but that's not the point. At least they shared our value system and he doesn't reflect the party at all. And he's been very clear that he's going to change our platform because rather than adhere to something that we have all crafted our entire adult lives in order to build what the brand of being a conservative means, he's decided to change it into what he thinks it should be. Even his economic policy doesn't line up, he's not a free trade person. He's for tariffs. We're against tariffs in our platform. He's unapologetic about, eminent domain and choosing to steal people's property because he has a better idea what could go there we are against that in our platform he certainly doesn't match up with us on any of the social issues and he has do, promised that with he's going to change it to be the workers party
0: the workers party you say and yet he is the apparent nominee so what makes him not republican if republicans are the one who brought him to this place Well, the
1: Republicans didn't bring him to this place. You had open primaries and blanket primaries. You had 60% of Republicans that all voted for another candidate besides Donald Trump. He's a Trojan horse candidate that was put in by populists and protectionists. We now have a duty and a role to adhere to, and as delegates, we get to decide whether we rubber stamp him as our nominee or not. It's our party. And we're the firewall uh, in representative government against the tyranny that has been imposed on us of somebody that we didn't choose and you've alienated seventy seven percent of women and eighty nine percent of hispanics who is he going to win with it's impossible for him to win because he doesn't have a base to go out and canvas for him to turn out the vote he doesn't have any donors donating he's outspent by hillary already he's not even campaigning in swing states that he must win in order to win the election And all the internal polling for Congress shows that they are going down in flames because of the Trump factor. So we're not going to have a Congress. We're not going to have the Supreme Court justices. We're not going to have a presidency. And in the meantime, we lost the brand of our party. We've lost what it means to be a conservative. We've lost our platform. There is no upside to having Donald Trump as our nominee.
0: You say he has no donors. That's not accurate.
1: And when I say no, look, he should have... $400 $400 million to be running this campaign right now. And in, in the month of June, he raised basically what a congressman raised.
0: So let's move and on to how you want to achieve your goals at the convention. Inserting something called the Conscience Clause, how would that work? It's, it's a new rule, essentially, you want to create as a delegate. Is that right?
1: Correct. So what the Conscience Clause does is it allows for a delegate on the floor to vote his conscience, his or her conscience. And free conscience is something that America was founded on. But my conscience clause is not what is giving the delegates the right to unbind. They already constitutionally have that right to unbind. All I'm doing is codifying it because there's a lot of Republicans that need a rule that in essence gives them the permission slip from mom to actually vote to unbind. And, of course, many are going to be voting for Trump. And Trump can, should actually embrace this concept, because if he can't win his own delegation, if they're not being forced to vote for him, if they're not being mandated and coerced to vote for him, how can he possibly win against Hillary in the fall?
0: So when, do you, when rather, do you think in the convention this would go down?
1: Well, the rules, the uh, uh, committee meets Thursday and Friday, so we're going to know if the rule passes by the end of the day, Friday. The convention starts Monday, and they actually vote on the rules on the floor on Monday. But that's not the end of the story, because what's going to happen on the roll call of the states, because the delegates know that they do not have to be legally bound, they're going to challenge the delegation tallies if they do not accurately reflect what the delegation is submitting to the delegation chair, there can be a challenge and there will be challenges because we have points of contact in every single delegation that truly know that they have this empowerment to do this.
0: Texas Senator Ted Cruz won Colorado's delegates, the 37 Mm -hmm. of them that go to the RNC. Uh, But you say that this movement is not to get Cruz specifically the nomination. It's not. It's not.
1: Mm -mm. No, it's not to get any specific candidate elected, and that's the beauty of what we've done. We're actually running a presidential campaign without a candidate. That's never been done in history. This is truly an unprecedented moment in history. But you have delegates from every single campaign, every single candidate that's active and involved in this, and we all share the same goal. We don't want Donald Trump as our nominee. And we're building it, and they will come. If we keep Donald Trump from meeting that threshold you're going to have a candidate step in. We've created a platform for him to step in on. He can hit the ground running. He can start raising some money. Because I will tell you, when you talk about the donors, usually by this time going into a national convention, I have a stack of invitations to corporation events that is six to eight inches high. I thought my kids were taking the mail. There was zero, zero coming into Cleveland. That is how toxic Donald Trump is. They do not want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. So I know the money's dried up.
0: So if if this works at the convention Mm -hmm. and Donald Trump does not uh, prevail, could it lead to the implosion of the Republican Party because of and maybe that's too strong a word, but just mass frustration of voters who have supported Trump and who will feel deeply disenchanted by the GOP?
1: Well, Remember that the majority were not Republican voters. So you've alienated the base, which are your workers. Those are the ones who get out and they knock on their neighbor's doors and they canvass and they convince people that the candidate is the best. And it is not enough to go and knock on someone's door and say, but he's not Hillary. That will not get him elected. So he's demoralized the base. He's destroyed our brand. And will the Trump voters leave? Yes, they will go back to the Democrat and Independent Party where they came from. But what
2: we will get Are you overstating
0: are you are you? Overst- are you overstating how many of these supporters are independents and Democrats and no, taking taking the pulse of the Michael
1: Harrington poll? That, that, I mean, he, he crunched the numbers, but we're going to gain back the swing voters. And that is key, because right now we've lost the swing voters and swing voters are who decide elections.
0: How would you respond to critics who say Donald Trump is exactly what the Republican Party is and that Republican politics have led to.
1: That, that, that's true, that the frustration with politics has led to this. But that doesn't mean that once you realize a mistake has been made, that you don't try and fix it. And subsequent to the, the preference polls, the primaries, we have discovered a lot more about Donald Trump.
0: You've said that Trump's people are putting pressure on delegates to give him their support.
1: Not just pressure. It goes beyond pressure. Pressure, I understand, that's fair in politics. No, it goes to they are yanking them out of their credential slots and taking their credentials. People that have invested in airfare and non-refundable hotel fees, and they are taking their credentials and saying, good luck. That is obnoxious and it's wrong. And by the way, there's no legal merit to that. They can't legally do that. We have to start a legal defense fund and have attorneys defending them all over the country.
0: Thanks, Kendall. You bet. You bet. Kendall Unruh of Castle Rock is a delegate to the Republican National Convention. She's a leader in the movement to oppose Donald Trump's nomination in Cleveland next week. Colorado Republican Party Chairman Steve House is also a delegate and a Trump supporter, and he is on the line from Ohio. Steve, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Before I have you respond to some of what Unruh said, tell us why you support Donald Trump.
3: Well, because I think when 12 million people choose a candidate, I think you have to honor that. I also look at his business background, some of his strategies regarding business taxes. Um, and, and frankly, you know, one of the things that he's doing, that I think a lot of Republicans haven't completely grasped yet, including um, Kendall in her conversation about party platform, Donald Trump is running a nationalist campaign. He's not running a campaign based on ideology. A nationalist campaign starts with you know, how do you restore pride in America? And what do you do about peace through strength and military? And how do you create prosperity? Those things don't necessarily, uh, talking points wise, align directly with what you would describe as a specific ideology. And I think there's some confusion about that. And I think when people get confused and say, hey, you know, he's not talking about limited government. He's not talking about some of the things that we talk about normally in the party. The reason why is he's running a nationalist campaign. And I think that works for a guy like Donald Trump.
4: You
0: say nationalist. Some might say racist. How do you respond?
3: Well, you know, I I haven't seen anything that I would categorize specifically as racist. People bring up the issue of. You know, banning Muslims, right? I mean, I've talked to Donald Trump, I've talked to his team about this. I think what he's really trying to tell us, and he'll continue to detail it is, uh, as President, he would be responsible for our property rights, for our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and the protection of those rights. And I think what you have to do is when you let people immigrate to the country, you've got to know what's their background, what's their intention, what are they capable of? because in those three questions, you, you're going to determine who should come. Because we need workforce enhancements continuously in this country. And you also should determine who's not coming. And I think if he was a little bit inarticulate about how he said it up front, so be it. But I think the intention is, how do I protect you and your property rights and your right to life? And that's what he's all about. He's not about racism.
0: So, Steve House to the convention. What do you think will happen around this conscience clause, which seems to be a major part of the anti-Trump strategy?
3: It's interesting and and I think Kendall has every right to bring this to the Rules committee and to the convention. I think that's that's you know she's a responsible delegate she's um she understands the rules, she's you know working through the process appropriately. I think what happens is first and foremost, they have to clarify, are they actually trying to add a vote your conscience clause to the rules or are they simply trying to eliminate Rule 16D, which is the allocation and binding of delegates? It's never been there before. It was new in 2013. So there'll be a big discussion about that. The biggest questions that you hear about are, will she get the votes to have a minority report or a majority? A majority, she needs 57 votes tomorrow and Friday or whenever it actually occurs And she needs 28 votes for a minority report, which a minority report means it goes to the convention and the convention delegates get an opportunity to look at and vote on it. I don't know whether she will or not. I think it'll be close. If it passes, I'm still of the belief that Donald Trump will win on the first ballot regardless.
0: Kendall Unruh says Trump is not a true Republican, that he has demoralized the party base, destroyed the GOP brand, and, she says, turned off funders. You've addressed uh, some of this disconnect between uh, some of the party faithful and Trump, but uh, how do you respond to those characterizations?
3: Well, first of all, on the fundraising, you know, the $51 million in June was essentially a two-week period, and I think I think if you have a two-week period and you raise that much money, um, especially the mix of how it was raised between direct donations from large donors and online and and, and other aspects of it, it was a very...
0: I think we may have lost Mr. House from Cleveland. He is Steve House. I'm
3: still here. Ah, you're
0: still yeah. there. I'm so glad to hear that. Keep yes. keep keep going, Steve.
3: So I, I think June's financial performance was strong. I don't think he's lost those donors. I think he can win. She talked about the polls. They're very close in almost every situation we've looked at recently. Um, and I think they're getting tighter and tighter because people are starting to understand who Hillary Clinton is.
0: During the state convention, Colorado's delegates were bound to Ted Cruz. You were one of them. Tell us about the pressures that Trump supporters brought to bear at that time.
3: Um, I I don't think there was any specific pressure. I think the Cruz campaign did a great job of organizing around um, the convention. There were 30 of the 37 were officially bound to Ted Cruz, and they still are. Until we get to the point where if he's not nominated on the first ballot, I don't think he will be, then they will be unbound to vote however they want on that. Um, I don't know. You know, I heard something about credentialing in Kendall's interview, and right now the way it works is I'm going to pick up our credentials for our delegation on Saturday, and I will be handing them out. I have never been asked not to give them to everyone or filter them, and I have not seen any issues here regarding credentials being withheld from people who don't support Donald Trump. I don't know where that comes from at all.
0: You did receive some threats, I understand, though, after the state convention. Um, Where did those come from?
3: Trump supporters generally. I mean, I think people misunderstood or, or were never aware of how Colorado uses a caucus and assembly process. We don't have a presidential primary. We don't do the voting like you would classically do voting. And I think people thought that somehow we rigged the system so that there would be no Trump delegates. That's not true. And yeah, I got 5,000 phone calls in six days and some death threats as part of the process. But in the end, you know, Donald Trump and I talked, um, he never threatened me and I don't hold him responsible for what every one of his supporters does. I mean, that's that's just part of what happens when you're in a political campaign.
0: You don't see that as reflective of the kinds of folks who support Trump.
3: I do not. I, I think there's there's a mix of people out there that are very, very angry about the status of America right now. They're tired of seven and a half years of a guy pal- apologizing for who we are. And I think that's ridiculous. We should be proud of what we do for the world and for ourselves. And I think there's a group of people that are just dissatisfied with low wages and health care costs. And they're very, very angry. And sometimes they take that anger out in ways that is a little bit abrupt and unexpected. But In general, I think you're going to see the mainstream Republican Party support Donald Trump very well.
0: Steve, thanks for being with us.
3: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Steve House chairs the Colorado Republican Party, and he's a delegate to the GOP's National Convention next week. He joined us from Cleveland. Hear our conversation with two Colorado delegates to the Democratic National Convention at CPRnews.org. Political battlegrounds are the focus this week of a project from NPR and member stations. It's called A Nation Engaged. And Jefferson County, Colorado, is arguably the most important bellwether in the country. For decades, the suburbs west of Denver have accurately picked the next president. CPR's Ben Marcus takes us to a county where more women are registered to vote than men.
5: We're The women who make up the Belmar Block 7 Arts District are well aware of their political power. At their monthly get-together, Melissa Baer, a fine art painter, says for the politically inclined, it's nice to live in a swing state.
4: I can actually, like, say something. So it does kind of make a difference, although I try to, like, sabotage my husband so he can't get to the polls.
5: Politically divided households are not uncommon in Jefferson County, which derives its bellwether status from the narrow split between Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated. Bear, a Democrat, says it's not so bad living with her businessman Republican husband.
4: Well, as an artist, it helps if someone in the family makes money. (laughs)
5: If there's a secret sauce of political politeness here, it's that these women can identify with each other beyond politics. Things like motherhood and art connect them. That prompts Anne Van Leeuwen, a painter and a Democrat, to pose a frustrated question.
1: I'd like to ask everyone here, wouldn't we agree that this paralysis of the, of the Senate and the Congress
4: is just horrible? I wonder if there needs to be reform there, just the way it's set yeah. up.
5: There are approving head nods from around the room, including from Lori Mastroni, who refurbishes old furniture. She's a Republican.
4: And I just want politics to just, like, chill out and people to get along. And I'm so—I can't stand the TV and the news, and I'm just so over it. It's the bickering and the calling each other out constantly.
5: But the dichotomy here is that depending on their political persuasion, the women in this group want different things out of this election. Like Mastroni says, Obamacare has been a disaster. But not so, says Carrie McKenna, a sculptor and painter and a Democrat. She applauds the work on women's issues, and she wants more, especially when it comes to the pay disparity between men and women.
4: What? Have we already been working on this for 30 years? What the heck is going on here that
5: we're still talking about pay equality? That resonates with Pat Pendleton, who's hosting this meeting in her cozy art gallery. The Democrat argues for a strong government. Without it, she says there wouldn't be programs she needs, like Social Security and Medicare. And she wants something done about the $50,000 a year college tuition that her grandson endures.
1: He is studying 40 hours a week and working 40 hours a week. That's tough. And I don't think, I don't know when it happened or why it happened, but to cost that much to go to college is immoral
5: and that has her worrying about the future of the middle class. But Penny Oliver, a Republican who runs another art studio, flips that around. She argues that government is actually killing good jobs.
4: I'd like to see somebody be able to stop regulation, stop putting you know businesses uh, under new red tape.
5: She counts herself in the upper middle class and is proud of the charity and jobs that she and her husband provide. If this tiny but important slice of the electorate is aligned on anything, it's that the presumptive presidential candidates are not an inspiring lot. Oliver points to one of the Democrats in the group. She
4: wasn't for Hillary in the first place. I wasn't for Trump in the first place. Um, you know, we're kind of forced at this point to pick the worst of, yeah. you know, so, however many evils.
5: <laughs> I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In 1962, Republican leaders here persuaded a young businessman named Bill Armstrong to run for the state legislature. Armstrong spent what was then a record amount of money, $2,000, on mailings to voters. At age 25, he became the youngest state representative in Colorado history. He eventually served in the U.S. House and Senate. Armstrong was, from the start, a fiscal conservative, as he told a group of constituents at the time.
3: When they see me coming down the street, people way down the distance are going to say, here comes that guy that wants to cut my taxes.
0: While he was in Congress, Armstrong became a born-again Christian. And several years after he retired from the U.S. Senate, he was hired to lead Colorado Christian University. Armstrong died July 5th. A memorial service takes place Friday. Dick Wadams is a longtime political consultant in Colorado and worked for Armstrong in the U.S. Senate, and he joins us for a remembrance. Dick, welcome back to the program.
2: Nice to be here, Ryan.
0: The Grand Junction's Daily Sentinel recently called Armstrong the most important Colorado Republican in 40 years. Politicians on both sides of the aisle have praised him. Former Democratic Senator Gary Hart, for instance, described him as intelligent, articulate, highly principled. And Hart said politics would be a better place today if there were more Bill Armstrongs
2: participating. What made him stand out in your mind? Well, he was always a gentleman, Ryan. uh, Armstrong uh, could disagree with people, and yet he had a very um, uh, open uh, style to how he talked to people. And I think he was respected for that reason by his uh, opponents. A gentleman. Is is that a rare thing in politics today that makes him distinctive? <laughs> well, I've thought a lot in the last week since he passed away, what made him different from what we're seeing in politics today? And I think that's what it is. I mean, Armstrong had a way of having um, very strong disagreements with, with, uh, with the Democrats and political opponents. But no one, no one ever walked away from a conversation or a debate with Bill Armstrong. I think feeling badly about him or thinking that they had been personally insulted or or um, uh, denigrated. I mean, Armstrong had was he was a gentleman at all times.
0: Do you think that that was a function of who he was or of the times that he uh, was in a gentler time or something?
2: Pa- pa- partially both. I mean, it, it's who he was. Uh, i 've worked for him for nine years, and I, I can tell you he was that way in 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 private as well in, in addition to how he conducted himself in the public arena um, and, and perhaps politics has has kind of gone off the rails in some ways uh, in the last uh, few years i I do think that um, uh, i 've thought a lot lately about why how Republican candidates today should take a look at how Armstrong conducted himself, but not just Bill Armstrong. Hank Brown, Senator Hank Brown, who succeeded Armstrong in the Senate. I think if you look at Senator Wayne Allard as well, the way they conducted themselves on a daily basis, they were fervent and strong fiscal conservatives, but they were articulate, but they didn't um, denigrate their opponents. Armstrong was elected to the Senate in 78. And what were Colorado politics like at the time? You know, Ryan, I, I really do believe that Armstrong created uh, the Republican Party that uh, dominated um, uh, for the next 30 years. Wow. Uh, it's, it's easy to it's, to forget that in 1972, 1974, the two elections around the Watergate scandal really decimated an entire generation of Republican leaders. People like Governor John Love, Governor uh, John Vanderhoof, Senator Peter Dominic, Senator Gordon Allen, giants in our party people who had dominated Colorado politics for more than a decade. And they were swept out of power uh, in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. What happened in 1978 is that Armstrong's Election ushered in a new generation of leadership for the Colorado Republican Party. Um, Bill and Francis Owens were volunteers and worked on the campaign. Who would become governor? Who would become governor? Uh, would become governor. That's right. Uh, Wayne and Joan Allard were volunteers in Larimer County. Who became a U.S. senator? Hank Brown was in the state legislature during that period of time. But he was certainly part of that that, uh, that Armstrong uh, revolution of the of the late seventies. And so, I don't think you can diminish at all the the impact of him winning a US Senate seat in the aftermath of that uh, of that the uh, Watergate scandal we've talked about Armstrong's conservative philosophy where did that show up in his politics any day you saw him on the floor of the US Senate any day that he conducted a town meeting in Colorado Bill Armstrong was an articulate, forceful defender of balancing the budget, of reducing the federal debt, of reducing the cost and scope of the federal government. And um, I think that was the consistency. And he said one time, he said that I am very inflexible on principle. but I'm flexible on the details. I think that's what made him an effective legislator. Not only his demeanor, but the way he would conduct himself. When he was confronted with losing on the floor of the U.S. Senate, he knew when to pull back. Uh, he also knew how to win as well. But uh, I think that's one of the differences as well, Ryan, uh, today is that I think that um, this uh, all winning at all costs uh, and not thinking about the long-term consequences of your position is what a lot of people uh, lose today.
6: We
0: are remembering Bill Armstrong, who served in the U.S. Senate from Colorado for many years and went on to lead Colorado Christian University. And um, he was also involved during the Reagan era era with
2: refuseniks, Soviet yes.
0: refuseniks.
2: Yeah, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about that. Set the scene. Well, remember in um, the the early eighties were a very uh, uh, tense time between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, and uh, there were uh, uh, people in, in the Soviet Union who were trying to get out, uh, who um, were, were, were resisting Soviet rule and armstrong took a very special interest in in um in the refuse nexus as they were known uh, because uh, they were standing up for freedom they, the the united states foreign policy was not uh, was such that they weren't given a lot of uh, uh, of attention by the federal government because Relations with the Soviet Union were so tenuous, and so uh, Armstrong kind of took it upon himself to be to be uh, an advocate for their cause in the U.S. Senate. Many of them were Jews. Yes, Is that they, correct. The, yes, the Nathan Sharansky. I think I'm s- saying that correctly, uh, but uh, uh, was certainly uh, 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 he was a Jewish uh, refusenik, and and um, and Armstrong took a special interest in that.
0: So when Senator Armstrong was actually in the House of Representatives, Mm -hmm. he became a born-again Christian. This is from a 1990 interview with Mm C-SPAN.
3: If a person's life is centered on Jesus Christ, it gives a significance to their life and to their vocation, to their work, including that of being a senator. I mean, if you're accountable to the living God, that is a much tougher standard to meet than being accountable to a group of constituents or accountable to a professional code of ethics. I, I don't mean to say, and I ought to add this, I do not mean to say that when I get up and cast a vote or make a speech that that's God's word on the subject. I don't mean that at all. I don't hold myself out as, as the spokesman for God in the Senate. In fact, on a lot of these issues, you'll find uh,
0: uh, Christians on both sides of the, of, of the issue. As we said, Armstrong became president of Colorado Christian University, and under his leadership, the school did some controversial things. It challenged the Affordable Care Act in court, and one got sued by a former employee who says she was fired because she lived with her boyfriend out of wedlock. More recently, the school is trying to avoid putting transgender bathrooms on campus. Did working at a Christian school instead of in Congress allow him to pursue
2: some of his more fundamental beliefs on social issues? Well, I think there is a difference between serving in uh, in Congress, representing uh, the people of a state or a district, and heading up a Christian university. And I do think that he probably... Uh, during his time at Christian at Colorado Christian, which was ten years, by the way, I do think it it allowed him to pursue his Christian faith in the public arena that he could not do as a U.S. senator and wouldn't have done. Um, senator Armstrong, um, uh, I think, had a tremendous balance between his his. Uh, his uh, evangelical Christianity and, and uh, his role as a U.S. senator and as a congressman before that. That kind of separation he in did. his mind, I guess, of church and state.
0: He did. And do you think that's a contrast with, with folks serving today? Or
2: Well, I do think sometimes there there's a—I um, do think people, for, for that matter, on both sides— uh, lose their perspective in how they conduct themselves uh, against their a religious backdrop, yes.
0: We mentioned that you joined Armstrong's Senate staff. That was in 1980. He hired you, Dick Wadams, when you were just 24 years old on one condition.
2: What was the condition? <laughs> you know, Senator Armstrong took a deep interest in people who worked on his staff. And to uh, I'm uh, and everybody who worked for him had a story like I'm about to tell. I mean that he always took a deep interest in going going beyond the job you were doing in his office. But I had not completed my degree, Ryan. I kept running off to campaigns, and so I was going to go to work for him. I was a year short of my my undergraduate degree, and he said, "You you can go to work for me, but you've got to complete your your degree while you're doing it." And I, it, it just it just tells you something about him. That he thought that was important, not for him, me to work in his office, but for me just, you know, as a, as a person. You got your degree. I did. Well, yeah, he kept checking on me. I, mean, <laughs> I he, He'd call me up in the office and said, well, uh, how are things going in Pueblo today? And by the way, are you going to class? I mean. <laughs> you ran his Pueblo office. I, I did for yeah. two years. Yeah. Uh, sorry for your loss. And thanks for sharing these
0: stories with us. Nice to be here. Dick Republican political consultant and worked for the late Senator Bill Armstrong from 1980 to 89. Armstrong's memorial service is Friday in Highlands Ranch. Coming up, a beer lover searches for the soul of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Somewhere amongst hiking, history and drinking, you will find the soul of Colorado. Says Denver journalist Ed Seelover. His new guidebook is called Colorado Excursions with History, Hikes, and Hops. By day, Seelover reports for the Denver Business Journal. And Ed, it's good to see you.
6: Thanks for having me in, Ryan.
0: Your book lays out three day trips around the state, each with a historic site, a natural spot, so maybe a hike, and a drinking site to visit. Is there a tour in this book that you are dying to go back to, someplace maybe you'd like to be right now other
6: than here? You know, maybe the place that surprised me the most and that I, I always want to get back to is a hike called Zapata Falls that is not far from the Great Sand Dunes. Um, I, I'd only read a little bit about it as I was uh, researching where to go for this, and so I I set out down this path, and it was only a half mile long, thought, this isn't much... Uh, but the path drops you in the middle of this grotto where you then climb into the falls. You're not watching the falls from a nice overlook. You literally can climb up onto the rocks, get into the falls, and just be immersed in the roaring sound of the water, and it's just this one stream of light coming through the top, and it's one of those places in Colorado where you really think, I'm not in this world anymore. I am somewhere else. Wow. Is it a very
0: misty environment?
6: It is. Yes, it's a very wet environment. In fact, you one of the great joys of the hike is that you have to cross the stream several times so you have to just get over the idea that your feet aren't going to be soaked by the time you're done with okay. this and you embrace it as you go okay so that's one third
0: of the story you're telling right that's the hike that's the getting outdoors and then you marry that with history and drinking. So what else did you find in the area to make that trip complete?
6: Well, the San Luis Valley is a fantastic place, and it's very surprising that you might find one of the more complex Belgian brewers in Colorado down there in the little town of Del Norte. 1,800 people, one stoplight, one stoplight, two buffalo farms. Uh, I, was and... I was
0: just there, <laughs> actually staying there. The, the Monte Vista Crane Festival was, was in the, oh, next, yes. the next town over. They've also mm. got a great honey shop in Del Norte.
6: I did not know that. There you but, go. Yes. But, um, but the Three Barrel Brewing, uh, founded by John Bricker, was actually started in the back of his insurance shop. So you used to be able to walk <laughs> in, uh, buy a policy for your truck, and also get a growler of his beer. He actually moved it to about a year and a half ago to a a brand new location pizza restaurant. But you're just shocked at the complexity of these beers, and frankly, the niceness of, of Bricker and his family, who are the primary staff there, uh, in 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 this middle of seemingly nowhere place. I mean, and, and you throw that in. And, and I'm kind of mixing two days uh, in the book as I, uh, as I talk about this but you throw that in with visiting a place like Fort Garland, um, which is uh, not on a lot of people's radar, but a fascinating and very important historical site uh, that was home to the Buffalo Soldiers for a brief period, was one of the last uh, homes of Kit Carson, and was the place where uh, Colorado forces gathered before they went off to fight the Battle of Glorieta Pass, hmm. the westernmost battle of the Civil War, and, and it was only around for 25 years, but Is preserved, and you really get a sense of how important the West was in the early days uh, of, uh, of this country.
0: Okay, so that's the San Luis Valley, and remind us, Zapata Falls, and then the brewery is... Three Barrel Brewing. Three Barrel Brewing, and then the historic site to check out is... Fort Garland Museum. Fort Garland. What drove this project? Was it the beer...
6: At it, first? The history at first? The hiking? It, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, these are the three things that I do with my downtime. And uh, as, I, uh, as you may remember, I wrote a book in 2011, Mountain Brew, that was a guide to Colorado's breweries. And I wanted to do a follow-up, but I could never go back and do that again because breweries are opening so quickly it would be irrelevant before it comes out. Mm. And so uh, I thought of uh, something that Brian Dunn, uh, who's the founder of Great Divide, and Adam Avery, the founder of Avery Brewing, told me during that book. They said, you know... We, we tried to do things that other people were doing when we founded our breweries, and we were struggling. And then we said, the heck with it. And we ended up making beers that nobody else was making, but that we liked. This is kind of that version for me. I, I love history. I love hiking. I love uh, drinking good beer or, or wine and spirits. And I don't know how many people have those three loves. But to me, this is what this state is all about, those three areas. And I thought, I'm going to throw it out there. And I'm going to put out a guidebook like nobody else has done that tries To explore these great facets of Colorado. Okay, how about a trip a little closer
0: to the big cities of the Front Range? So within, I don't know, uh, an hour or so of Metro Denver.
6: Well, uh, one that uh, I enjoy and that I'm actually going to make this weekend as I've signed down there is getting up to the Cripple Creek area, uh, which is about an hour uh, west of Colorado Springs. Uh, the, the day that I have in the book takes you on a, uh, a natural uh, ride. Most of the most of the natural sites are hikes. This is a drive, uh, Gold Camp Road, uh, that used to be uh, an old mining route, uh, literally where the gold uh, was run over. And now it's one of the best foliage drives in the state of Colorado. Colorado it's along a dirt road away from nowhere and it takes you uh, takes you out of your your normal day uh, you get up to Cripple Creek uh, you can go visit the only Bordello museum uh, in uh, in in Colorado it is uh, it is preserving the history of Cripple Creek's red light days up there and uh, and being at the old homestead house museum uh, is, is really an eye-opener uh, and then you go over to the boiler room tavern and and this was a, a fun little fun for me. Cripple Creek doesn't have any breweries per se, but uh, it has this old bar in the basement. It literally was the former boiler room, the former laundry room of the Hotel St. Nicholas in Cripple Creek. And it uh, it's only got about six ten chairs in it they've got a few good beers and and spirits but it really puts you in this mindset of wow this hotel which used to be the catholic hospital in town really has seen a lot of these days and i am just for a brief moment part of it
0: we are speaking with ed c Lover about his new guide colorado excursions with history hikes and hops one trek that stands out to me is uh, lake city in southwestern colorado I want to say this is one of the most remote places in the lower 48. It is not far outside of Gunnison, I think, and um, it's surrounded by vast federal lands, which makes it so remote. And the town is probably best known for its connection to the cannibal Alfred Packer.
6: And and that's exactly why I chose it. It is, uh, locals brag about being the most remote city in the lower 48. Um, If you're going to go there from Durango, it's going to take you about uh, uh, three hours to get up there, in fact. Um, And uh, but to me, the idea of seeing why Packer is. Ate these people. Why? And of course, if you don't know the story of Packer, he was uh, guiding a group of uh, gold seekers uh, through the wilderness in winter uh, to Colorado. They got uh, marooned and lost. Uh, and depending on the version of the story, they either all died, all five of them, and he ate them, or he killed all five of them and ate them. Uh, courts have found the latter to be the more true version. Uh, and, uh, and to go to Lake City and to be able to stand on the plateau where they were all all later found where their bodies were found and see how isolated it is uh, really put you in that mindset. And then to be in a town uh, that uh, that is this far out of it and still have a cool place like the uh, Packer Saloon and Cannibal Grill where you could go and get local <laughs> beer and an appropriately uh, meat centric menu um, really made me feel like this is this is an essential stop to understand Colorado away from the Denver's and Fort Collins's of the state.
0: Another day trip takes people to Camp Amache in Grenada and the it's the Japanese internment camp there and that I think that same excursion is the one that includes the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. So uh, there are some very uh, sobering places in this guide.
6: There are, and I actually combined the two of them into one day just because you only have so much time in southeast Colorado. And I thought it it certainly is, and and I just call the chapter Colorado's Darkest Days. Um, uh, But they are two very different experiences. At Sand Creek, it is a lonely, lonely plain that you're looking out over and imagining as as you've Reread the story going through uh, the museum area there, imagining what it must have been like for the Peaceful Indians to be just attacked by a, a drunken band of soldiers one day in 1864. Uh, meanwhile, Camp Amache, which which theoretically is is also a place of great sadness. You've got 10,000 people who were forced out of their homes during World War II into this internment camp, but at the same time is a great place of hope. Uh, the, the local history teacher who runs the Amache Historical Society Museum, um, has all of these great stories about the forming a football team at the internment camp high school and beating local Holly High, or the newspaper they produced there, or the for-profit business they were able to produce at this camp, uh, while 31 of them went on to serve in the army and and to receive high medals, despite the fact that their country had taken their liberty from them. and And seeing how remote that area is, is a fascinating look into how that camp ended up there, too.
2: Well, thanks
0: for sharing all of this with us, Ed. No, thank you. Ed Sealever's new guidebook is a mix of drinking and hiking and history, and it's called Colorado Excursions with History Hikes and Hops. There is an excerpt at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You see rabbits all over the state, but it's rare to see giant ones in downtown Denver. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones says these rabbits are an example of private companies curating public art spaces. Doug Lane holds a can of carpet cleaner in one hand, a rag in the other. He watches
7: as a pool of white nylon inflates into a rabbit the length of a school bus. We're cleaning the bunnies. Lane's company manages events, and he's out here to make sure these big, inflatable bunnies stay white.
2: And because it's an art project, they have to be near perfect.
7: You could see these five bunnies outside two Denver skyscrapers for a couple weekends in June. An Australian artist made the sculptures and called the series Intrude. It's a nod to how rabbits are perceived in Australia
4: both being a very cute, huggable animal, and at the same time, because they were brought over as an invasive species, they're wreaking havoc in the landscape in Australia.
7: This is Deborah Simon. She's vice president of Arts Brookfield. That's the cultural arm of Brookfield Office Properties, which owns the Republic Plaza building. That's where some of the bunnies were. The commercial real estate firm has properties all over the world, and many of them display art. Simon says these days, more people spend more time at work than they used to.
4: I see that there's more of a desire to have an animated workspace.
7: Now, when it comes to budgets, Arts Brookfield is vague. How much do you guys spend a year? Do you have any figures like that in terms of um, the financial commitment? Significant
4: amount of money. I mean, we we spend uh, the money it takes to do things that have the right content and that are the right image for our company.
7: You want to tell me a dollar figure, though? Simon shakes her head. No. A spokesperson for Arts Brookfield later tells me it spends more than $1 million a year to host exhibitions and concerts around the world. That means more than 500 days of free public events. But it turns out sometimes the artists don't get paid, other than to cover the costs of materials. Courtney Lane Stell says this is all too common. Stella is the curator for a Denver organization called Black Cube that also brings art to public spaces.
2: The organization's nonprofit or for profit are benefiting from this programming and they're not valuing the labor by not paying for it.
7: The inflatable rabbits have now left Denver, but go inside Republic Plaza and you'll find more art in the lobby.
4: So, Peoplescapes features artwork that focuses on people and the human element placed within diverse settings.
7: There are paintings, photographs, and more in the Peoplescapes exhibition. Many of the artists are from Colorado. Most of the works are for sale, and Deborah Simon hopes the general public sees them too.
4: What we want to do is get people comfortable around art so that they will want to then participate in the cultural life of the city.
7: Now if you want even more art, just walk two blocks west to Denver's most recognizable skyscraper the Wells Fargo Center. You may know it as something else.
4: The cash register building, because it's shaped as an old-fashioned cash register.
7: That's Kathy Mossman. She's vice president for Beacon Capital Partners. Last month, the real estate firm unveiled a $17 million makeover which includes a fitness center, a courtyard, and a new permanent art collection.
4: Because of the huge ceilings, the vastness of it, it really felt like a museum, and so it was really calling for art and calling for something to just enliven it.
7: Mossman wouldn't get specific about how much money went to the art, other than to say...
4: A portion of it.
7: There's a wall of digital works that go eight stories high. Five LED screens show animations like a flock of birds, cloud patterns, and a forest. And these are high-tech installations hooked up to sensors outside. So when the wind blows, trees on the screens sway. The company also commissioned 14 paintings and five sculptures by New York City-based artist Enoch Perez.
3: The subject of my work is mostly architecture.
7: The works Perez made for the cash register building were inspired by its American architect, Philip Johnson. Perez says he's happy to have the work, but he says it's kind of a catch-22. It's great that they're acknowledging that art is important to the well-being of like the people that are in their buildings. It's also a way for them to get better tenants. So, you know, I'm aware of what it is. Kathy Mossman of Beacon Capital Partners did say that attracting good tenants is important to the business. New York City is one place where companies and organizations have brought more art to public spaces. Jerry Saltz is the senior art critic for New York Magazine.
3: 99% of all public art is crap.
7: Saltz says there's a problem with public art.
3: A lot of it, in my opinion, has to do with the way the art is picked. That means
5: by bureaucracy.
7: Saltz is referring to how city programs usually appoint committees to choose public art. Those groups often have people from different backgrounds. Saltz believes that waters down the art that they pick. On the other hand, private entities rely on individual curators that have expertise. Now, Saltz admits he's a man of paradox. He says despite the selection process, he wants more public art commissioned by cities.
3: Because the chances go up. That the right curator and the right artist and the right sponsors get
0: something right.
7: Salt says the High Line in New York City is an organization that is getting it right. It's an old rail line that's been turned into an above-ground park. It's mostly privately funded, and some of the High Line's dollars go to art picked by a curator.
3: What's essential above all is trust.
7: In Denver, Arts Brookfield turned to a local curator for its current show at Republic Plaza. The company does this often when it hosts events in different cities. That way, the local curator can draw from regional talent when choosing art for all to see. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News.
0: Peoplescapes in Denver runs through mid-August. Check out photos of these art installations at cprnews.org. And that story is part of our exploration of public art in Colorado and how it's funded. So we interview the governor next week, and as always, we welcome your questions for him. Email them to us, news at cpr.org, news at cpr.org. Include your full name and where you live. And we may use the question on the air next week. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Rachel Esterbrook is our managing producer, and thanks to Kara Schiff... I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.